back from the Swiss Alps. You're listening to Southern Fried Philosophy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Southern Fried Philosophy Podcast, where it's two guys take on life, liberty, and the pursuit of gravy, and you, the listener, are getting a degree in common sense. We are broadcasting live from the HB5 studios right here in beautiful downtown historic Concord, North Carolina. We've got a great show lined up for you, as always, on the show today. we got some How You Be Doing, wacky news, and the doubleheader of guests of Shelley Coley and Christian Puccellini. Piccolini. We'll, we'll figure out the last name. <laughs> but before we begin, let me go ahead and introduce you to the second half of this flaky biscuit. That's right. We're talking about the pride of Anderson, South Carolina, 2016's honorable mention Uber driver of the month. Give it up on old mic number one. It's Mojo. Wow. Good to be back. Talking about Swiss Alps. That would be kind of nice on this hot day. Oh, my gosh. Muggy day of North Carolina. It is awfully hot. And speaking of Swiss, our mm. actually our guest from uh, Life After Hate just came back from Switzerland. Did he really? I, I don't know if he smuggled any chocolates back in, but <laughs> have to find that that'll out. Be, that'll be the question of the week right <laughs> That's there. That's right. <laughs> hey, thanks for tuning in once again. You can find us on southernfriedphilosophy.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. But yeah, if you go to Facebook at Southern Fried Philosophy and go to Twitter's and Instagram at SFP Radio. Still trying to give my daughter the delegation of our Twitter and Instagram, but mm. I'm kind of worried that she'll tweet some kind of Nicki Minaj video or something. We could only hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please also go to Google Play, iTunes, or Stitcher. Uh, subscribe. Give us a review. We appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask you like I ask you every week. Mojo, how you be doing? What burns my biscuits, buddy? Oh, here it comes. Um, actually... This is from the uh, whole uh, hospital doctors mm-hmm. fiasco. Okay, why do, why do uh, doctors clinics make you have an appointment time? <laughs> you know that's, what I'm saying? That's a great question. You sit there and you arrive at eleven o'clock. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be eleven thirty. Mm-hmm. Now you know you're sitting there reading the Reader's Digest from 1987, mm-hmm. or you know the Aquarium Life magazine <laughs> um, from you know the early 90s. The address has been cut off. Pages are half missing. <laughs> the addresses, you know, like the doctor brings oh, it from the, the house. addresses. Yeah, I the, thought you meant the actual dresses, like in. No, the addresses. Sorry. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, they're all, I mean, and then like maybe 12, 15, they'll call mm. you back. And then you sit there as they eat their lunch, you know, till one thirty. So I just don't understand that. <laughs> I mean, other day I spent uh, right at six hours at a doctor's appointment. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Grueling, painful, uh. hunger pains. Hangriness. You couldn't even eat for the six hours. No, the only thing I probably could have done, like the uh, uh, elf, you know, and ate the cotton balls or something. It was, <laughs> it was nothing inside. You couldn't have like a pizza delivered to doctor's I, you know, office. I, I probably could have done that or Uber Eats since it was yeah. downtown Charlotte. So that was, uh, uh, yeah, that's just why even have a time mm. or you know make it time out. You know, like we'll make it be here at eleven, but you can arrive at twelve. Mm-hmm. I just that just, just I, how about show up on time? My time is and, valuable too. That's all yeah, I can say. Yeah, how about just in that appointment, tell the old lady to stop talking about it, and we need to move on. <laughs> that's right. You get you get five minutes, bam, wham, bam. That's it. 
Wow. I maybe I maybe go a little bit more than five. <laughs> <laughs> Six and a half. So mm. how you be doing? Oh, you know, uh living at the Biggin Mansion, Biggin Manor. Mm-hmm. Uh, inside is great. Um however, I opened up our water bill this past week Ooh. and realized that the uh the Biggin Manor cabin has got a leak in it. What a way to find out. Mm-hmm. Yep. Went through six thousand seven hundred and fifty gallons of water hmm. and didn't even didn't even know it. So there's probably some Greenpeace water <laughs> advocacy group here. They're gonna get mad at They're me. They're gonna probably come find you now. Yeah. It, it so we had a plumber come out and look at it and then basically it's I don't want to handle that. That's too much of a handle. <laughs> oh wow. So we're not gonna do it. Mm. <laughs> so I'm having another guy come out, probably to tell me something similar. And then uh then we'll rent the backhoe and just nail that sucker down and and just be done with it. Holy so crap. yeah, the whole biggin cabin might be uh might be gone. Yeah, I think we mentioned before and this uh, this cabin was built like eighteen ninety, they eighteen ninety by yeah. some, allegedly by some like pre Boy Scout <laughs> type cult, cult think, clan yeah. tribe, something. <laughs> so it's uh, it's pretty cool, unique, but uh I'm sure it probably has some wear and tear on it after the years. Sure, yeah. So that'll that's one thing. And then uh Amazon. So um, it was Amazon Prime Day mm. last week, and um, I decided, well, I'm going to go ahead and, and buy a toothbrush because uh, I needed one. I left one. Not a TV. No. But a toothbrush. A toothbrush. Out of everything that was really awesome on Amazon Prime, I ended up walking away with a toothbrush. Um, it was an electric toothbrush. Left mine back in Florida, so I was like, yeah, I need to pick one up. Picked one up, and then first keep in mind, when I looked at it, you look at how big of a discount and a deal you're going to get. Right. So, uh, first and foremost, $179 is the original manufactured suggested rail, uh, retail price. Right. Who pays $179 for a toothbrush for one? Evidently some people because there's a market for them. So. <laughs> but uh, mine was knocked down to a whopping 60 Wow. So I was like, I'll just pick it up. Sure. You know? and, and then I get it and realize, hey, this has got Bluetooth on it. <laughs> <laughs> like, again... Why do you need a Bluetooth toothbrush? You play like you brush your teeth to tunes or something? Like, no, you know. no. When I I downloaded the app just to see what it would do, right. and it's just basically a countdown timer of two minutes. Oh, knock yourself out. No, it would be kind of cool. Like if you could like if you need kind of a pick me up, you can put on some, you know, sure. Metallica or something yeah. like that. Gotcha or in the morning. Yeah, or if you're feeling kind of somber at night or mm-hmm. you know something to kind of relax to, you can put on some. You know, Barry Manilow or... Yeah, uh, get you in the mood, yeah. like brushing your teeth, yeah. you know. Hey, it's some, some hello time, yeah. you know. But... Um, I probably wouldn't choose Barry Manilow for hello time. <laughs> maybe Barry White. But then I see the same toothbrush on a commercial. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying to myself... So, I'm, you know, I'm dialed into that commercial because mm-hmm. now I want to see what they're going to say about it. Um, and 9 out of 10 dentists recommend it. So then I got to thinking is... Like who is that other dentist? Right. That one dentist that's always the holdout. Right. And for every dental thing that there is, it's nine out of ten dentists. Well, actually, nine out of ten dentists recommend this podcast for they do. Dental, for dental health. We, scientific fact. <laughs> we haven't figured out who that one is, but like that's that's got to be the worst. Are they doing the same dentist? And they're just <laughs> like that one guy is just absolutely. He's a holdout. Refuses. He's never going to refuses to endorse anything. <laughs> It could be possible, yeah. It's just that, that one the, dentist. That or, the, that or they have a sacrificial lamb every, <laughs> you know, the, like the exploding toothbrush and he can't vote. Right. So, so he wouldn't recommend it. And then then where would you want that, where would you not want that extra one dentist? Right. And I'm thinking, well, what if that one dentist gets selected for jury duty? Mm. Like, that's awful. He's going to hold out for whatever reason. Right. 
He's just right. not going to go with the flow. Well, he goes in faking Tourette's. <laughs> Possibly. But, I mean, that's like the worst thing to have, like yeah. to be that that one dentist out of nine that doesn't recommend brushing your teeth. Like who, again, who is that guy? <laughs> I, I recommend the standard old, uh, the, that, the ones we hand out at the dentist office, you know, that last about a week. Mm. That's, that's what he probably recommends. <laughs> he's, he's probably anti-technology. He's the worst dentist yeah. in America. They're like, who is the worst? Let's get that guy and he'll be the ninth. Yeah, he's probably like, you ten. know, just go to YouTube, look up how to make your own toothbrush. <laughs> it'll it'll take you about 27 guy. hours and about $422 <laughs> in parts. And real horse hair. Yeah. I mean, good gravy. Who is that guy? I think we need to seek that out. Maybe that's, maybe that's <laughs> one of those things we need to invest in a PI for. <laughs> I would almost do it just to figure <laughs> out who that guy is. Oh, my gosh. All right, so we're going to go into some of that amazing wacky news. All right, so here's my first wacky news. Melting Glacier reveals Swiss couple who went missing 75 years ago. So let's listen up, um, all you um, global warming people, and say that nothing good happens. There is a couple that got trapped in uh, an, an avalanche or a crevice, a crevasse, crevasse. some could say. Um, they got stuck in a crevasse, died, passed away. And then with all of the the heat and the global warming of things, it's uh, revealed this couple. It brought them back. Um, they are intact. They were they were found holding each other. Mm. Uh, all of their things were intact, like all their clothes and you know ID cards and things like that. Um, that's that's kind of sweet though that they're holding yeah. each other because my wife, if it had been her, I would have they, they probably would have found her with no legs and arms because I would have like devoured them trying to you know. <laughs> Keep the hunger pains away. <laughs> right. so. I was going to say I'd probably be eaten. <laughs> but uh, I thought that was kind of nice that uh, that they were found. The um, yeah, I think they went out to feed their cows or cattle or something like yeah. that. I think is what I read. Yeah, and and normally the mama doesn't go because she's usually pregnant. They said uh, she has like five or six kids, mm. and and finally this one time she wasn't pregnant. And says, "Hey, I'll go out with you." That would be a time to go, right? right. They're like, "Oh, well, my husband fell in a crevice, <laughs> a crevasse," wow. um, and then didn't come back so they were all kind of split up but then you know they found them and they're going to come back for the funeral which is kind of sweet yeah at least that's uh get some closure for that family the uh at the end though the the kid said for the funeral i won't be wearing black i think white would be more appropriate <laughs> <laughs> it represents hope which i never lost so how are how old are the kids now they gotta be in their 80s and 90s right because i think it's they think they went missing like in 42 or something like that i think that's what the yep yep and we'll have the article up on the website. 1942, but yeah, that is. Yeah, they they were missing for 75 years, so the wow. the kids are going to be. Yeah, they got uh, missing August 15th, 1942. Um, so yeah, the kids are probably pretty old at this point. Wow, mm. that's crazy. Yep. Uh, this is not kind of one of those funny stories, but it's kind of one of the stories that kind of upsets my political views. So <laughs> oh no, Postal Service is giving Amazon a huge subsidy. Hmm. So basically. Amazon has a gift card from Uncle Sam. So every package that Amazon mails through USPS or United States Postal Service, mm-hmm. they get a $1.46 subsidy. So what? 
those prime packages that you're getting. Oh no, that's how they uh, that's how they get them so cheap and so fast to you is because the USPS is giving the priority and also free shipping. So every other small business owner out there, if you have an online business and you ship, I'd be a little mad that hmm. they're getting subsidies. So we have we have a little small business out of our house. Yeah. My wife does, so it's a lot of shipping, and uh, she don't get no dollar forty six back. No, so that's your tax dollars hard at work. Can you can we? Can you request to actually have the dollar forty six put into your account? I, I'm sure they will probably laugh at us, like <laughs> just any, like anything. So, wow. Uh, so, have you seen uh, the story about OJ and the cookie? I've not. I know that he's up for upcoming parole hearing. I think tomorrow, actually. Yeah. ESPN's going to have nonstop coverage. Are they really? Yep. Oh yep. my God. juice, juice. Um, so, an illicit cookie could have cost OJ Simpson a chance for parole according to a retired correctional officer who worked in the Nevada prison where Simpson had been for almost nine years. So um, the retired uh, correctional officer has come out. He's writing a book and saying uh, what could have happened is O.J., the first week he was there, somebody was giving out from the uh, from the kitchen, they were giving out free cookies. Mm-hmm. And O.J. had a, got a, one of those free cookies. So everybody else goes back to their cell and eats the the. You know the cookies, right? And except OJ, he's just out in the middle of the hallway, just snacking on the cookie, which mm. you're not supposed to have, right? And then the the one of the officers came up, said, "Where'd you get the cookie?" He snitched on the the cookie giver. He, he got rid up for having contraband, right? So um, the retired officer went to that lady and was like, "Hey, listen, you need to not do that. It's his first day here. He's gonna not be able to get parole because of this con- oh, illegal wow. contraband." And so she she refused for a while, and then he coaxed her into ripping up the write up that he was supposed to get. Wow! Having the extra so and I think the original sentence was thirty three years for, right. the, for the juice. So that would probably be the remainder of his life, I'm sure. Yeah. If he wouldn't have gotten parole, and he's only I think eight years in, seven years in, I believe. So <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe a few more. I, I I just breezed through the article. So the yeah. cookie did it. The cookie if could the co- have. If the cookie fits, <laughs> you can't acquit. I mean, could you imagine like getting a write up on your first week for having an illicit cookie? Yeah, and then that could put you in jail for like the remaining what? What are they going to do? Make 20? shanks with them? I guess I, I don't know, but it was contraband, illegal contraband. The uh, the retired um, correctional officer said one of his persuading ways to uh, get the lady to throw away the write up was you'll forever be known as the cookie monster. <laughs> 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 so that kind of decided to to make her throw that away. So I wow. thought that was kind of funny. That's 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 a little crazy cuz you got to think they could derail his, you know, freedom. I'm not yeah. I, I don't I, I hold no opinion on this. I mean, I except, you know, the original trial, what back in 94, 95, I think, the yeah. original trial happened, so and we we're all shocked at that day, but this you, this yeah. whole pro, yeah, this whole parole thing like the cookie that's, that's nuts. So the the Glove didn't get him. Right. The bloodstains didn't get him. Right. His whole story didn't get him. The night chasing, didn't get him. Uh, riding away, riding away in the Bronco, uh, right. White that Bronco. didn't get him. But right. oh, a cookie, a cookie got him. That would be kind of funny. The it's, irony, <laughs> the irony of it that a cookie did him in. So. <laughs> Juice, Juice. You got any more? Oh yeah. Florida Church sends collection notices to members not tithing enough. <laughs> is, is this not? This is not Babylon this is, B. Correct? This isn't the. Uh, this isn't the Onion or Babylon Bee. So, wow. Um, yeah, there's a lady by the name of Candace Peterson joined the Greater Mount Moriah Primitive Baptist Church in Tampa about six months ago. 
um, earlier this month, she received a collection notice from the church saying she needed a tithe at least $50 a month, plus it listed the other fee, other fees what? that amounted to about $1,000 a year. It are also you, said that her 11-year-old da- daughter would need to tithe $5 a month. Are you kidding no, me? No, no. The letter, uh, uh, which... Uh, several members received uh, said the manda- a mandatory minimum th- tithing was being imposed as an effort to pay off the church's debt. Uh-uh. No. I, my, I, uh, I'm trying to find what Bible verse that's in. But, uh, I, seriously, one play show, I had uh, one of Robert uh, got uh, letters from his church one time that says you weren't tithing. tithing. Oh, really? Like, come on, y'all. Wow. Like, for reals? I, Jesus I, I, said you like a cheerful giver. Like, I... I guess Bobbert was uh, missing that once every four week uh, tithing sermon. Well, he he kept referring back to the seven year jubilee year of jubilee <laughs> where everything was forgiven. He was just I'm going to wait seven <laughs> years and, <laughs> and be free. Uh, mm. uh, all right. So my next one is, and we've noted on the show how many times I think that you should not have an animal that can kill you as a pet. <laughs> um, but a circus handler, fifty seven, is hospitalized with serious head injuries after a camel bit and trampled him. So before I said you should not have snakes, you should not have large animals that will kill you, and now I'm going to add to the list a camel. Um, and a man was airlifted to the hospital after he was bitten and trampled on by a circus camel on Friday. A 50-year-old, year, 50-year-old said that uh, he was the camel's handler at the Lewis and Clark Circus, and he was attacked in St. Charles County fairground in la plata maryland at 2 30 p.m evidently it was really really hot the camel said uh-uh i ain't having it and just attacked the dude and and trampled all over him so i'm going to add that to the list you should not have so a camel a camel can handle saudi arabia mm-hmm. heat but <laughs> can't hold her la plata la plata maryland heat that, maybe wow maybe he sustained serious injuries and had to be airlifted to the shock trauma center I guess the churches need to look out uh, and maybe change their theme up with the nativity scene. <laughs> right. Maybe maybe a velociraptor would be a little more a little more <laughs> easy going. Where's Jesus? Where's baby Jesus? Uh, oh, golly. So right. that's a little crazy. Uh, going on with the cookie theme, mm-hmm. um, 7% of Americans think that chocolate milk comes from cows. The milk part does. No, no, they actually think chocolate Please. milk. Please, yes. Lord, tell me they don't think that it's the brown cows that make <laughs> Some 16.4 million Americans peep, uh, mistakenly believe that chocolate milk comes directly from the cow's teats. A study has revealed that 48% <laughs> of American grown-up adults are not sure where milk comes from. Are you serious? While 7% says it comes from the cows. <laughs> the uh, the actually looked this up because I was like, this has got to be. It can't, it's got to be fake. This is actually a lobbying group called Innovation Center for U.S. Dairy mm. uh, conducted the recent survey. So, I, yeah, I really don't have to read any more of the article. You have got to be so, kidding me. And, but the biggest shocker is 48% don't even, don't even know where milk don't, comes from. Yeah. Y'all, I can't, I can't Com- even uh, process that. I, I guess I guess they missed the uh, memo in um, kindergarten. So yeah. you mean to tell me we've got we've got college students coming out of college with a hundred thousand dollars of debt of school, but yet we can't figure out where milk comes from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, there's there's actually uh, um, in like urban bigger urban cities uh, like Chicago, Atlanta, mm-hmm. New York. They actually have classes called um, lifestyle classes, and they actually learn how to use um, a skillet, you know, over. 
an oven or stove mm. they actually learn how to um, use a can opener a manual can opener wow and people actually pay this mm. as part of their skill set like you you would pay to go to this class oh, on yeah. how to use a can opener yes what are we doing like, obviously they've why, never seen a can why opener. can we not be doing this right now wow i would fly there and do it for two dollars <laughs> cover my flight and i'll show you how to do it for That's two dollars right. Good night, y'all. That's where we're at now. Can can I also tell you, folks, you could go to YouTube and figure out how to use a can opener right. or a skillet. I figured out how to, to uh, fix my air condition on my truck through YouTube <laughs> this week. But Did you really? Yeah, there's probably can opener videos on there <laughs> too, so at least I don't feel so subhuman now. Can we, can we just start doing basic human skills videos? Well, you know, they used to have home ec classes back in, oh, back in the day. All right, so... I, in fear of getting my man card revoked, <laughs> home ec was my favorite class out of everything. It was the best. It had all girls in it. I learned how to cook. Right. I learned how to sew. Like right. those things in, in growing up, I was like, I could actually use this. Like sure. trigonometry? Mm, not really. Like what am I going to use that for? But I was like, hey, I can make cheese sauce all I want. <laughs> Here we go. It's a valuable lesson. I tell you. I, that was my favorite part. I took wood shot before they took all the band saws out of the school. Yeah. So. I, I took... You know, wood shop. That was a good class. Yeah, I think I took home ec for like until I got kicked out or something. Would you make? Would you make in wood shop? Uh, wooden ducks. Really? Like, yeah, like uh, it was like a manual duck that you just you had a stick on it. Or you pushed it, and and we had cut oh, out. Yeah. We cut out rubber tubing for the feet. Okay. It was something we something stupid we did. It was fun you though, go. you know. But yeah, hey, for seventh eighth grade, that was pretty awesome. Yeah. So I made. I think we made birdhouses too, or something like that. Hmm. I made a um, uh, rod and reel holder. Ah. That was kind of handy dandy. Yeah, no yeah. doubt. Mm. Unless you don't go fishing, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, uh, my dad would use it for putting sticks in it that he would beat me with. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You'll find that switch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It was a switch holder. Yeah, uh, maybe cigars. Probably work fine for cigars. Well, the the end was a little bit too small oh, okay. for cigars. Gotcha. Switcher <laughs> sweets. Switcher sweets. <laughs> there you go. It's a switcher sweet holder. <laughs> nice. When we come back, we're going to have Shelly Coley. She's a singer-songwriter out of Conroe, Texas. She'll be doing an event here in Concord, North Carolina, uh, coming up this Friday. So At Red we'll, Hill Brewery. At Red Hill Brewery. We'll definitely tell you more about that later. So you want to check her out, and um, stay tuned.
All right, we're back. Uh, this is Southern Fried Philosophy, and on the phone we have with us Shelly Coley, singer-songwriter from Conroe, Texas. Um, Shelly, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, Shelly, so you are singer-songwriter. You're actually going to be um, having an event here in Concord um, coming up this Friday, August, uh, July 28th at 8 p.m. at Red Hill Brewery. So we're really excited to have you uh, out there for that. Um, but tell our listeners a little bit uh, about your music and maybe how you got your start and a little bit more about you. Okay, let's see. Um, about my music, I think probably that that's always been my hardest question to answer because people are like, what, what's your genre? And because I, since I started with music, started back with music because I took a long break, you know, my focus has been so much on the songwriting and the song, mm. it's been a little bit um, challenging to figure out a genre. <laughs> so okay. I, I, I will kind of classify it as singer songwriter. And most people kind of think of that as like acoustic guitar, sleepy, you know, storytelling, that kind of <laughs> right. thing or whatever. And that would be accurate. <laughs> <laughs> that would be mildly accurate. <laughs> but All right. I have people sometimes say, Oh, I just love to listen to music. It puts me in such a relaxed state. I just want to go to sleep. I'm like, Oh, good. <laughs> Great. That's the greatest compliment, right? <laughs> Thank you so much. Your music puts me to sleep. So you Your need to be, you need to be on a star, uh, Starbucks, so. uh, CD, I guess. Right. Oh yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Is it true sorry. that Nashville Times has named you the songbird of your generation? The what? The songbird of your generation. Oh, gosh. Did they? I don't know. I, I, we <laughs> can start, we, we start that rumor. I would be really excited <laughs> if they did. I would be like, let me see that in print. <laughs> well, I'm sure we could Photoshop something for you. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh so, I mean, you know, genre is kind of folk, folk, storyteller, figure songwriter, kind of just about my life. And I took a big, long break of, you know, doing music. I went to Nashville to do the whole famous thing. I was kind of somewhere between Christian and country. And uh, well, Country is Christian. That's right. Yeah, country <laughs> is Christian. <laughs> and I and I went to Nashville and was like, oh, I don't really fit in here. And that was years ago. I didn't really fit into that music. So we came back to Houston and I met a bunch of like uh, drunken, you know, twenty year old teenagers writing music that <laughs> loved music. And no one, no one in Nashville loved music when I was there making it. Hmm. You know, like they all like did it to be. And at least the people I encountered, I should be careful what I say, but sure. the people I encountered did it to be famous. Mm -hmm. They did it because it was this dream and this career and all that. And, but I met a bunch of people here back in Texas when I moved back here that just loved to make music. And they were like, get better at your instrument, get better at your songwriting, mm -hmm. come drink beer with us and play music. <laughs> and so it. I did. Yeah. And I've made four records since then. So. Well, my daily, but. my daily prayer every night when I get down on my knees is, you know, Lord, touch Careful. my wife. Careful. Uh, Lord, uh, keep my kids safe. <laughs> and please get rid of Luke Bryan and Florida Georgia Line out of the country <laughs> yes, music genre. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're the same person. Good, good. So if we can get a prayer chain going, and I'm going to send a prayer request out. Yeah, for I'm going to send one of those nah. prayer chain emails out and uh, see if we can get that going for Florida Georgia <laughs> Line and uh, Luke Bryan and a couple other cats to retire. 
That's funny. I mean, there, you know, that music's repeat. There are people who like it, so you know, you mm. gotta, you gotta make music for the people. So people that like that music's un-American. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just going to go ahead and throw that out there. <laughs> I'm just gonna say I've, I've jammed to those songs at least Florida Georgia Line maybe once or twice. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm sure you know the words. Don't you? Baby, your song. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like you know, people get, people give me a hard time about like you know. For a long time, I tried to be like this music purist, and like I only listened to the Beatles and Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell, and you know, I mean, all those things are true. I do love all those things, but then I have then I had a teenage daughter come along, and we just listen to whatever she wants to listen to on Spotify now. <laughs> and there's a lot of good music out there that you might not think would be as be good, you hmm. know. So you just Miley Cyrus's new hit, yeah, <laughs> Malibu. Yes. Mm. Uh, I have no That's, clue. You don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> I that, haven't actually heard that yet, but <laughs> I am a Taylor Swift fan. I will say that unapologetically. So. Well, I'm kind of, that's kind of a guilty pleasure of mine too, just because yeah. I have a 13 year old daughter too. And I've had to, <laughs> I've had it's to not learn even every guilty pleasure for me anymore. I'm just like that girl is a badass businesswoman. Yeah. She has risen to the top. She is no making it. Deny it. She is making it. If Taylor Swift happens to be listening to this podcast. Um, I will ditch yeah. my wife if you're interested. So. <laughs> if you're interested, <laughs> I got to keep. I got to keep at least one sugar mom. <laughs> I mean, you know, she's better a watch private out. Jet. That's my my and JT's dream private jet. So. Yes. There yes. you go. You're my you're my escape pot. For my sugar yeah. mama, if I need one. <laughs> yes, for when I get famous someday. <laughs> You're right. Mm-hmm. Oh, Shelly, you said uh, you focus mainly on the songwriting. Do you have a specific songwriting process that you go through? Uh, No, but I will say I've recently figured out that I have to have a guitar in my hand to really like complete a song. I, I work with a lot of teenagers, um, helping them with their songwriting process and mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll be in the room with them working on a song and I'll be like, you got to hand me the guitar because I can't, if I can't like put my hands on there, it's hard for me to really work through the song. I, that, it didn't used to be like that because mm-hmm. I wrote mostly lyrics and I would collaborate with other people on music. But now that I uh, played an instrument more, I mean, I played keys for a long time and wasn't very good at it. So when I picked up the guitar, I was kind of like, it sort of opened up a new, a new process for writing for me. And I'm mm-hmm. not even really good at that. I <laughs> I like I'm a songwriter and I happen to play the guitar a little bit also <laughs> just to just to get through a show, you know, so <laughs> sure. But it helps my process a lot more to have the instrument, so nice. Uh, um out of the songs that you've written, what are some of the ones that are the most important or impactful for you personally? Uh m- well the song about my daughter uh, which is called Conversations with Z. That's been probably like the like monumental like song of my mm. of the records that I've made. But just because a good de- portion of my demographic is m- moms or parents, you know, people who will come out to my shows, and mm-hmm. they're oftentimes parents of kids my age, my kids' ages, and um, and that song's kind of grown up with her too, and has a, like it has a little amendment now at the end. <laughs> it <laughs> nice. talks about her not wanting to wear makeup and stuff. And so as she's grown up, that's changed a little though. She wishes I wouldn't play it anymore. <laughs> but, uh, so that was, that's been there. I mean, that's been a big one. And then, um, I, I have a new record coming out and it's like five songs of just sort of like, I call them meditations, but, um, they're really not that vastly different from my other songs, just sort of evaluating life and like the process I've been through. And, um, I have a song called only just begun. Hmm on that record and it's 
probably my favorite song I've ever written. And I, I don't think uh -huh. I ever said that about any other of my songs. It's just, it's kind of the culmination of a lot of growth and hard work <laughs> to be a better human. So mm -hmm. nice. <laughs> so cool. Uh, I'm sure there's probably more, but, but you know, those are the ones that stick out in my mind as kind of the important, important ones. So sure. So um, people are coming to come to the show uh, again, uh, July 28th. What can they expect when they when they walk up the stairs at Red Hill Brewery and um, see you ready to go? They can probably expect that I'll be wearing a kimono <laughs> and yoga pants. Nice. <laughs> I'll be in my kimono too. So. <laughs> I work. I wear yoga pants and kimonos and sandals. That's what I do. Well done. <laughs> Drinking That's green it. tea and uh, uh, yes. yeah, have a little lotus flower or something. I got you. And I'll, and I'll probably be like, namaste. <laughs> <laughs> so if I yell, play free bird, what will happen? I'll probably be like, well, I could like, I'll probably do like some version of like namaste and flipping you off at the same time. <laughs> It's possible. That's it's the possible. reaction I get everywhere. That's, uh, that's pretty... not, I, I believe that about you <laughs> already. I, I just walk at the door and I get that. So it's, it's probably pretty common. Namaste, jerk. But like I tell a lot of stories with my songs. That's mm -hmm. why we named this event Stories and Songs because mm -hmm. um, it's not just a house concert. It's not just a concert. It's not background music. It's definitely the stories behind the songs and people who like that kind of music because that's not for everybody, you know? I like when I go to hear music, I want to, I connect better to live music. If people say, if they give me a little glimpse into why, how the song got born, you mm -hmm. know? Sure. And there's a lot of live music out there and a lot of things pulling for people's attention. So I think that if you can give them a, a, like a slice of reality, it helps them get into the song a little bit better, you know? Yeah, so. no doubt something that connects it to them and it's like hey here's my story but here's like the opening for you to get into if you want to come and you know sure. experience my story as it pertains to you so very cool well i'm looking forward to it i'm looking forward to seeing you and your ginormous eyebrows and uh, i cannot <laughs> wait uh, for this event I, people ask me at least once a day if they're real so <laughs> <laughs> like two caterpillars trying to wrestle <laughs> that is so true <laughs> all right okay. well thank you so much and uh note. can't wait to see you free bird right, free you. bird free bird free bird free bird <laughs> giving you the bird <laughs> bye see you later thanks Jeff. bye guys thank you thanks bye words cannot describe how awesome robert and his team at webmerized are in our time of need robert came through for us and devoted more time than expected to help our organization develop our new website it truly is a blessing to have an individual that can speak to the average person not in the it world in a manner that can easily be understood the process of working with his team was painless and i look forward to working with them for future projects our website is spectacular and i'm really proud of what was developed by webmerized Thanks, thanks, thanks. Don't take Stella H.'s word for it and also Southern Fried Philosophies, but go out to webmerize.com, W-E-B-M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, or check out the sponsors link on our website. And if you mention the word biggin in your order, you'll get 10% off. Check them out at webmerize.com for your web services needs. These are the days of America, brother to brother.
Welcome back to the Southern Fry Philosophy Podcast. Today we have Christian Picciolini from Life After Hate. Um, he is an Emmy Award winning television producer, a speaker who has just got back from Switzerland, mm. a published author, and a, a reformed extremist. Um, I'll be honest with you, I'm going to let Christian kind of do the talking here because his accolades in his life is just astounding. An, an amazing testimony yep. of his perseverance and just where he's been to where he is now. So welcome to the show, Christian. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. So uh, first off, what, what were you doing in Switzer, Switzerland? You know, it was probably the most beautiful place I think I've ever seen with my own eyes. I, I, I was there uh, for a conference, um, but it, uh, the place where the conference was was uh, just near Montreux, Switzerland, if you've ever heard of the Montreux Jazz Festival. Yep. And it's this palace up in the middle of the Alps overlooking Lake Geneva, and it was just stunning. It was almost as if it wasn't reality. It was an amazing place to, to meet other people from all over the world, uh, people from Israel and Palestine and uh, Kosovo and Lebanon and just you know Africa and all over the place and, and realize that after sitting together for nine days, uh, you know, it reaffirmed the idea that we have much more in common uh, than mm. we have uh, different. And uh, to hear some of the issues that were happening all across the world and, and you know, places that are having civil wars or massacres, um, really, you know, it sh also shows me how similar we are in that regard, that we, you know, have problems everywhere and we have these fundamental human needs to to survive and support our families and be happy. And, and there are constant battles to do that, sometimes against people we don't even know why we're fighting. Hmm. Well, usually it's because someone tells us to go fight them. <laughs> 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 so tell me uh yeah. your amazing story how did you how did you start off i mean you've i guess tell us about your i guess teen years i guess where you kind of were sure. in your teen years you know i think most people would be surprised to hear that i had a, a pretty relatively normal childhood uh, you know i came from a good family um uh, my parents were italian immigrants who came to the u.s in the mid-1960s and uh had to work their butts off to to really you know make it in a, in a hostile country towards immigrants and uh, that kept them away from the home quite a bit because they opened a small beauty shop on the south side of Chicago mm. and uh, they were gone sometimes seven days a week 14 hours a day you know and as a kid growing up as a teenager uh, I felt really abandoned uh, by them even though looking back now and having my own children I recognize that they were just doing their best to work hard and, and support the family but, you know, as a kid, as you're out there searching for your identity and, and your community and, and you're driven by your idealism and looking for your sense of purpose, uh, I felt pretty marginalized. Um, I was bullied uh, and uh, didn't have a lot of friends. And, you know, even though I came from this good family, I had this kind of underlying trauma of feeling abandoned and feeling marginalized. And one day at 14 years old, I was standing in an alley and I was uh, it was 1987. I was smoking a joint, and this firebird comes roaring down the alley, and this guy gets out of the car, and uh, he comes up to me, and he grabs the joint from my mouth, and he looks me in the eyes, and he says, don't you know that that's what the capitalists and the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile? <laughs> you know, I didn't know what any of those things were at 14 years old, including <laughs> the word docile. But, right. Uh, <laughs> this was the first guy in my life, this first adult, because he was much older than me. Uh, who really kind of gave me a sense that there was uh, a purpose and that what I was doing was wrong, not just because it was stupid, like my parents would say, or, you know, if they were worried about what somebody might say if they saw me, 
this guy gave me a, you know, a reason. Um, and I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. Uh, but I was struck with his charisma and it just happens that this guy, uh, his name was Clark Martell was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead leader. Mm-hmm. And that alley that I was standing in right on the corner of union and division streets, no lie. Those are the names of the streets. Um, <laughs> That's where the American uh, neo-Nazi skinhead movement started, right on the southwest side of Chicago, and it changed my life forever. So I guess from from that, I guess you were uh, after. I think I read on your biography that Chuck went, uh, Chuck Martell went, actually went to prison, and uh, you became the de facto leader of this uh, organization, I guess, right? And then I guess you merged another organization together. Yeah, after after a couple of years, you know, from the time I was 14 until maybe like 16 or 17, I, you know, I, I learned the ropes. I learned how to recruit and how to photocopy flyers and um, and how to, you know, network with other groups that had started to pop up now across the country, uh, even with clan groups. Uh, you know, we would uh, correspond. This was before the Internet, so we actually had to write letters back then to type them <laughs> You're up. Right. Uh, but you know, we'd send them out to the, to each other's PO boxes to communicate. That was that was mm-hmm. our network. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, once I had learned enough, uh, Clark, um, you know, unfortunately, he and a bunch of other skinheads from the crew had gone out one night um, with uh, you know an idea to to take revenge on a on a skinhead girl that had been part of the crew who they had seen uh, standing at a bus stop with a black man. So they went to uh, her apartment and they kicked in her door and they beat her uh, until she almost died. Uh, and mm. before they left, though, they painted a swastika on her wall with her own blood. And very luckily, they were uh, she didn't die, of course, but mm. uh, even, uh, just as lucky they were arrested for this heinous crime. Uh, but that also changed my life because now suddenly, you know, at 16 or 17 years old, there was this void in this really infamous organization. Um, and uh, because I'd been around the longest of everybody who was left who wasn't arrested and because I'd learned how to recruit and because I was ambitious, um, I saw it as an opportunity to step in and, and to lead because I really, for most of my life, it felt very, very powerless. And this kind of manufactured community and identity really filled me with a sense of perceived power, although it was you know, not real power. And uh, I took control of, of this organization, which was you know, America's first, and um, I shifted the focus to, to recruitment. Uh, and I started a white power band, one of America's first, to recruit young people through music. Wow. One of the things you said at the beginning was, to, to most people's surprise, you came from a loving family. Um, so yeah. how, how important is that? Cause usually we get the stereotype of, well, they come from like a one parent home or, you know, a no parent home or whatever. Like how important is it for, do, do you feel like, uh, that our parents are there and how do you connect the parents with like a generation today? Like how do you connect them? Cause they feel, and they, they seem like they're disconnected so that, yeah. so that you can give them an identity and a narrative as you say. You know, that's a really great question, and certainly, you know, a strong foundation of is of utmost importance. Um, and, you know, it starts with kids from the day that they're born. We really need to, you know, foster uh, their empathy, and if they have passions as they grow up, we need to support them. Uh, and, uh, you know, be careful that young people don't 
feel marginalized in a world where, frankly, we're all pointing the finger at each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people feel like they're on this great divide being polarized, and it's true. Um, so, you know, I think it's, you know, as far as the generation of parents and how they connect with the children of today, it's very difficult because what they have and what we have that, you know, maybe previous generations didn't have is the Internet. Um, and the internet really is a wonderful, amazing technological tool that makes life more efficient. And, you know, as part of all these great discoveries that we're, we're starting to do, but it can also, you know, like every other great tool can be abused. Mm -hmm. Uh, and because there's so many young people who are feeling marginalized, who are disenfranchised with what's happening in the world, you know, they, they go to college and they can't afford it or they get saddled with debt. And when they get out of school, they can't get a job, you know, and this is if you're lucky enough to even get to school, um, you know, and, and there's really nothing to believe in right now. We're in a really uh, tumultuous time in our country's history where, um, you know, we're looking for guidance and uh, we're, you know, we're kind of failing at that pretty miserably. So young people who are idealistic are driven to want to change the world. Uh, but because they may be awkward or because maybe they're not finding a lot of hope uh, in real life, they turn to the Internet. And mm-hmm. on the Internet, they're able to create an identity. Uh, they're able to find a, a community of people. And, uh, you know, that community, once you're in, will develop that purpose for you. And there's so much propaganda online coming from the extreme right uh, and neo-Nazis uh, and also the left and also, you know, from, from every type of extremist group. Um, it's really become a platform to put all these ideas out there. And if you step in it uh, accidentally or on purpose, if you're looking for it, uh, the algorithms that exist online now Mm. suddenly will just start to give you that information over and over and over. It's like when you go to Amazon and you buy Pampers diapers, it will recommend Huggies for you (laughs) because it knows. Right. Well, unfortunately, social media is like that, too. So if you start to go down a pattern of of landing on some of these propaganda, you know, what we're calling fake news websites these days that inflate, you know, black on white crime statistics or are completely putting out conspiracy theories, you know, chances are good that that's what your feeds are going to continue to serve you. And if that's the only reality, you know, and the only information that you're uh, being given and you're already isolated from the world so you don't have the opportunity to, to really see the truth. It could be a very dangerous place for vulnerable people, and I think every young person who's you know searching and confused is vulnerable to that. I think in our genetic makeup, we all seek some form of community. So I think you're right. That's man, what what a revelation it is as far as you know, as far as the, the algorithms with the internet and the social media aspect. Um, and just like I have a teenage girl now, 13 years old, and music is everything at that age. So I could also see how that would play into um, grabbing, grabbing these kids. So, well, think about. I mean, when you were thirteen years old, were you ever thirteen years old? I don't know if you guys <laughs> were thirteen years old. Uh, I, my, I, I sometimes I think I was just uh, gifted from heaven, but my wife says I was born. So, <laughs> my wife still <laughs> says that I act like I'm thirteen. <laughs> there you go. Well, we're we're part of the same club then. Uh, but you know, just imagine what it was like when you were thirteen. All you were worried about was sitting in. You know, are my ears too big? Are my clothes cool enough? Does my breath smell? You know, you. 
a million things. And every what we don't realize is that every person on earth is self-conscious about mm-hmm. those same things. Mm-hmm. Yet there are some people who choose to become bullies about it uh, because they're uncomfortable with themselves and they project their own pain on other people. And there are people who become the victims of that and end up becoming, you know, potentially marginalized because of that type of, uh, you know, bullying. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough world to be, it's always been a hard place to be a kid, but I think it's become a lot tougher because, you know, they have access to all this information and because there's so much information, it's hard to decipher what's real, what's fake, what's propaganda, what's parody, uh, what's worth it, what's, you know, clickbait. And uh, we spend our lives kind of sifting through all this, you know, stimulus that keeps just pouring at us. Uh, and after a while, we kind of become numb to it. And, uh, you know, if if we're unlucky uh, to go down a focused path of, of extremism and, and hopefully not violent extremism, it's really tough to get back out. Because once you do that, you really have to leave everything else in your life that's important behind your family, your friends, your hobbies, all the things in your life that you love go away. It's like drugs or joining a gang or, you know, it's no different than flying to Syria to join ISIS. Um, you're trying to fill a hole uh, that's missing, a pothole, I call it. You know, was it trauma? Was it abuse, addiction, poverty, lack of education? In my case, it was abandonment. How are you going to fill that pothole with something negative instead of something uh, positive? And, and those recruiters are very good at feeding you the fear rhetoric and the negative so that you fall into those potholes mm-hmm. and you lose your way. Yeah. Speak, speaking, of, I'm sorry, speaking of recruitment, um, give, kind of give me the psychology that – I guess yourself, I guess, learned as far as recruiting. Um, sure. And because I, I think that's just an interesting aspect to how um, groups, you know, will, will gravitate. I'm just gravitating and realize someone who basically has sucker on their head or someone who's looking for something. Cause I, and I've been part of right. you know, groups and trying to find my identity with groups. So kind of can you kind of give me some psychology behind that? Yeah, well, you know, of course they're looking for vulnerable people that have perceived grievances or those potholes that I'm talking about. Um, And, you know, it doesn't start out as hateful. Uh, It starts out as bolstering your pride. For me, it started out with this this guy kind of boosting uh, my pride in in my uh, Italian heritage. You know, he would come to me and say, you know, you're you're a proud European. Your ancestors were great Roman warriors. They were great artists and thinkers. And that's something to be proud of. And I was, you know, nothing wrong with being proud of, of the accomplish, accomplishments of your ancestors. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it turns into, you know, later on down the road, oh, you know, all that pride that you have, you know, there are certain people out there that would take that away from you if they could. And then you start to ask questions or start to wonder about who that might be. Uh, and then, you know, they start to feed you the answers of based on conspiracy theories of, of who that might be, whether it's, mm. uh, you know, immigrants or blacks or Jews. Um, uh, and then it even evolves further than that. And, and, and then the fear rhetoric starts uh, to ramp up and, and they say, you know, if you don't do something about those people that are trying to take something away from you, there will be a genocide on your on what you're proud of that will go away. It'll disappear. And then suddenly you're faced with this this fear of, of, you know, I can't let that happen. It's the only thing in my life that's important. Sure. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's very good to it's very they're very good at finding the cracks. And, um, you know, a good recruiter will will individualize their approach to every person uh, and feed their ego 
um, because most people are pretty powerless. And then when you're brought into this group, you feel very powerful because you're surrounded by this, this community and your identity is now, you know, this, this hero that they've made you into. Um, and, uh, you're willing to do whatever it takes to stay a part of that, to not lose that community and that identity and your purpose is, is driving you. You know, I always say that ideology doesn't, um, you know, make an extremist. Uh, that's not what comes first. It's that search for those three things, identity, community, and purpose. And the ideology is just a vehicle to be angry. It's just a tie that binds everybody together. And it gives you an excuse to go out and hate other people and blame the other because you really hate yourself because you're really unhappy with your own situation. And it's nobody else's fault that that's happening to you. Wow. I think that's, that's huge. It, it, allows me to not join a hate group and also get suckered into another timeshare. I think <laughs> they probably use the same tactics. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to do a timeshare, especially if it's a hate group. Zone. <laughs> uh, let's continue on with your story. So you're uh, 16 leading the group. Um, tell us what happened after that part. You know, I spent eight years from the time I was 14 years old until I was 22 as, as part of this uh, movement. And, uh, you know, I progressed into violence, uh, into, um, you know, growing this ego, this this fake power that I thought I had and, and essentially using other people uh, to get there. Um, you know, I made a lot of music and planted a lot of seeds in people that I'm still pulling the weeds out from today, 22 mm-hmm. years after I've left. Um, and uh, I feel very responsible and a lot of shame for some of the decisions that I made because I know how they affected other people uh, to, to, you know, to feed my own ego. Um, not only the people that I physically hurt and physically attacked, um, but also the people whose lives that I changed by bringing them into uh, what I was doing. Uh, you know, there are people who are no longer alive because of that or if, uh gone to prison and now, you know, it's destroyed their lives or, you know, just, uh, I've destroyed a lot. As I was trying to build myself up, uh, I destroyed not only other people, but I destroyed myself. And it Mm. it was very, very difficult at that end of eight years to leave. Uh, But I can tell you that uh, what really, there was a series of events that, that really woke me up. uh, And it started with the birth of, of my son. When I was 19 years old, I met a girl and we fell in love and, and we got married and uh, we had our first child at 19 and our second at, at 21. Nice. Uh, and she wasn't a part of the movement. Uh, she hated it, actually. And, and uh, I don't know how I got her, how I convinced <laughs> her to go out with me. I think yeah, it took a long coverage, time, huh? but I was a different person when I was with her. And suddenly mm-hmm. when I had my child, uh, you know, and I held him for the first time in the hospital, uh, I just remember thinking about... Um, how I had lost, he reconnected me with my own innocence that I had lost Mm. because at 14 years old, I stopped being a kid. Um, and I, I, you know, I became this, this adult almost driven by, you know, hatred. Um, and, uh, I reconnected when I, with my own innocence, when I held my child and suddenly it challenged my narrative that, you know, it challenged my identity. I wasn't the skinhead leader. I was a father. Uh, I wasn't, you know, surrounded by a manufactured family. I was surrounded by the family that I created and loved genuinely. Mm-hmm. And my purpose was to, was to be a good dad and a good husband and, and to keep my family safe. And it wasn't, uh, you know, to annihilate uh, the other anymore. And it really started to create a confusion in me because I felt that those new uh, feelings that I had were genuine. And um, it started to question what I was involved in. 
And, uh, you know, I made a deal with my wife at the time. I said, you know, I'll, I'll pull out of the street. I'll stop doing the things that, you know, uh, are risky um, to protect the family. And I'll hand over the reins, you know, to somebody else who wants it. But I'll still stay involved. I'll open a record store because all I knew was music at the time. And mm-hmm. I said, you know, uh, I'll sell white power music, but I won't do anything that puts us in danger. Um, and she, she agreed to that, uh, you know begrudgingly. Um, but I opened a record store to sell white power music that I was importing from Europe and uh, it, it did really well. Uh, it became 75% of my gross revenue at the store. So it was before the internet. So people were actually driving, <laughs> right. you know, from other States to come buy it. Or just um, buying and, music. Um, yeah. And, uh, but I also got greedy. I also said, well, you know, I don't want to just take money from my brothers and sisters. I'm going to take money from the enemy too. I started to sell hip hop and punk rock and, and heavy metal thinking, well, you know, I'll probably not, never sell any of it anyway. But when the customers came in to buy that music uh, and they knew who I was, it was a small area of town. I had a really high profile. Uh, I didn't hide the fact that I was selling this music. Um, you know, people who came in to buy the hip hop and punk rock and, and metal were, uh, they were black or they were gay or they were Jewish. And at first I was, pretty standoffish with them. You know, I was happy to take their money, but I wasn't interested in, in having much conversation with them, but they kept coming back. And every time they came back, they would treat me with more empathy and more compassion. Hmm. And after a while, the conversations got to become very personal and very friendly. And it was that compassion that I received from the people that I least deserved it from when I least deserved it, that really allowed me to humanize them and completely abandon uh, what I had been doing for eight years. Wow. I just couldn't reconcile the hate anymore because now I had actually met people that I thought I hated. Whereas before, and this is the case for, you know, nine and a half, 10, nine and a half out of 10 racists, you know, in the world, they've never met the people that they claim to hate. They've never had a meaningful interaction with them. So it's easy to hate somebody you don't know. It's sure. easy to blame, you know, the other for the problems that exist in your life without, you know, reflecting if it's maybe you that is causing those problems. Uh, and now I had started to become surrounded by, by all these very loving, very compassionate, very empathetic people who uh, could have broken my windows, punched me in the face, uh, you know, mm. threatened my family, and they didn't. Um, they took it on themselves to, to break me down with love and it, and it worked. Uh, and that's the same technique that I use today when I work with people to help them disengage from hateful ideologies and hate groups. Wow. And so can you maybe go into what are you doing now? Like how, what you're leading an organization life after hate. Um, yeah. and so maybe tell us a little bit about that organization. Sure. Yeah, um, I co-founded uh, Life After Hate in 2009. We became a nonprofit in 2011, and uh, the whole goal of uh, of this organization and, and we're all formers. We're all former extremists from uh, you know uh, neo-Nazi or skinhead or Klan backgrounds, and uh, our goal is to uh, to try and help people disengage from hate movements and hateful ideologies. And we don't do that by uh, arguing with their ideology. We don't tell them that they're wrong. We don't, you know, talk politics with them as much as possible. Uh, instead, we really try to, to treat the human condition first. Mm. So, you know, when I was talking about potholes earlier, what I do when I work with somebody is I really listen a lot. And I listen for what those potholes are. You know, is it trauma? Is it abuse? Is it addiction? Is it uh, mental illness? Is it 
uh, abandonment or unemployment, whatever the case may be. And then my job becomes to fill those potholes, uh, and I will um, pair them up with people who can help them do that. So job trainers, tattoo uh, removal, artist, uh, tattoo removal services, or uh, mental health professional. And once we work on that, and uh, you know, they start to get a better foundation of who they are. Uh, once they get those skills, they find that they don't need to blame the other anymore because now they have the skills to compete. Um, but what I do to challenge the ideology is I will actually immerse them in situations uh, that challenge their narrative. Mm -hmm. So I may introduce a Holocaust denier to a Holocaust survivor mm -hmm. or uh, a Klansman uh, to a victim of, of uh, Klan violence or an Islamophobe with an imam or a Muslim family to have dinner with them. And uh, it's it's a safe, structured situation that, you know, I monitor and that I'm there for. Uh, and it's pretty amazing what happens when you can actually connect with the people that you think you hate. Uh, you usually walk out of there finding out that you have more similarities than you have differences and uh, that you really had no idea why uh, you hated uh, that person or, or those people to begin with. Um, and uh, it's a pretty magical experience to not uh, ideologically argue but rather to put them in a situation to feel mm. um, because it's easy to, you know, lob comments back and forth on the internet or even, you know, like over family dinner. But when you actually get a chance to meet that person who you don't know, but you've hated, um, and then suddenly you realize that there's no reason to hate them. Uh, and that was all based on fear and isolation. Uh, it's pretty magical. But we also, after that, know that it's very important that we need to provide another community for somebody who's being taken out of a community. So we have mm -hmm. uh, a private online support network where we have over 100 people, 100 formers that have gotten out uh, who are at various stages, all you know, very, very positive stages, who now act as kind of a support group uh, where you know, people can talk about anything, uh, and sometimes for the first time because they've never been able to talk about their past to anybody else. And it's, wow. uh, it's been a huge been a huge uh, support and a boost for, for people who are going through something like that to be able to realize I'm not the only one on earth who has done this. Sure. Yeah, one of the things that we have on the show is just common sense is a superpower. And it's amazing just talking to somebody that you may not um, you know, rub shoulders with every day, how you can maybe understand their point of view and their perspective of life. And just, just having a conversation isn't isn't the end of the world of somebody that you may not, you know, get along with it's kind of crazy <laughs> yeah. yeah you know we're not causing each other's problems you know some some african-american person in detroit is, is is not doing anything to affect me negatively uh you know an immigrant uh, who might be you know in california and once we realize that we're being pitted against each other <laughs> by you know uh racist systems systems and, and power structures uh, and essentially using us as pawns against each other, mm -hmm. I think we're all going to feel a little bit ridiculous about that. Sure. that you know, we really need each other to survive. Um, yeah, I mean, go, go do something with somebody that, you know, you think doesn't deserve to be talked to and, and see how that changes your mind. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, tell us about Exit USA. You're the director of that, too. So, uh... Yeah, Exit USA is, is a program of, of life after hate, and that's our portal for people to reach out to us uh, confidentially if they, if they need help themselves or if, if they know somebody who needs help. 
people can go to exitusa.org. Uh, it's a very simple one-page website with a contact form. Your information is confidential. Uh, we don't share it, um, and uh, we respond very quickly. And, um, you know, if there's anybody who might be suffering out there or who just has questions or maybe confusion about what they believe in, if they're if they're in that movement or going down that road, uh, you know, maybe we can help. Um, you know, we understand because we were those people, uh, and we've all – you know, gotten in, we've all gotten out and, and, uh, you know, we're here to help other people, uh, mm. know what we know. I, I, obviously you don't, I'm not asking for statistics or anything like that, but do you notice that the, you mentioned before that once you pull someone out of this community of hate and you provide them now a community to, to talk to, or to fill that void, you know, regardless of it's education jobs, whatever they need, is that helping the recidivity rate for someone that, kind of comes out and then goes back to that lifestyle of hate i mean does that or what are you noticing there on the trends you know most people that continue to talk to us uh you know in the early stages usually end up going through with flying colors and end up you know amazing people at the end um you know if if we have a lot of people who contact us for the first time say i want to help we respond and we never hear anything back from them. Hmm. So we assume, you know, that they have either, have either gone back or have found their way out on their own. Um, but I can, I can tell you um, that you really need that new community. You need help getting out of it. One, it's dangerous, right? You know, it's hard to do on your own. Uh, two, you know, unless you have all the information you need to make up your mind after you've left, uh, you may continue to have buyer's remorse about leaving. You may <laughs> want to go back because it's comfortable because it's, it's like addiction. Uh, it really is like addiction to drugs or alcohol. You know it's bad for you when you do it. You know how it makes you feel. Uh, it may make you feel good for a little while, but the minute you know that that good feeling goes away, you feel terrible. And when you're having problems in your life that are not even connected to, to that drug or to that alcohol – uh, it makes you want to go back to that because it's a place of comfort. It's a place that you recognize, even if it's miserable, uh, it's mm. safe. Uh, at least you think it is. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's important to, to have credible uh, messengers, people like us who have been there to, to be that bridge, to help people connect to, you know, information and other people and in a safe way. Um, but it's also important to have a community, um, you know, that supports you and, what I don't like to see is people who are trying to get help for this being judged uh, about their mm -hmm. past, because that's not going to help anybody want to continue down a better path. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not an easy road to go down. And there are, there is going to be criticism and, and people need to prove themselves and seek forgiveness and make amends. Um, but even while people are doing that, I mean, how I get even 22 years after I've left after, you know, the work that I've been doing for the last 15, I still get people that, you know, will post on my timeline saying that, you know, they don't believe me uh, and that I, you know, for what I did, you know, 30 years ago, I should be punished for it. And, you know, that's their opinion. And then they're entitled to that. Uh, but I also know that what they're saying is coming out of a place of ignorance, not of a place of, of hate uh, and not of, out of a place of compassion. Because mm -hmm. if they knew what I did and, and the people that I've worked with and all the amazing people that work at Life After Hate, um, you know, they would probably think differently. So you, you've led from fear, and you're leading from love now. What's the difference in you and, and how you're seeing people react to that? Because, uh, you know, media today, you know, right. is just all about fear. You know, it's fear tactics to scare us, and, and you're doing it different out of love and compassion. What's the difference between yeah. those two? 
Well, you know, I think fear goes for really primal, uh, under understood feelings uh, that people don't quite, you know, have figured out and they're used to manipulate. And I, you know, I think love uh, is a really natural uh, instinct. Um, you know, not to say that fear isn't helpful in certain situations, but manufactured fear is really detrimental. Uh, you know, I always say that hatred is born of ignorance, fear is its father, and isolation is its mother. Yet we're born of empathy, and, and so we hope to return. So, you know, I think we're all born with this sense of empathy. And when people sometimes tell me, like, oh, you haven't changed, I say, well, you know, maybe you're right. I am still that person I was born to be, but for eight years, I learned a really hard lesson and went down a wrong path, and, mm-hmm. and I think I'm back on track now, and I want to show other people the way, too. Um, but love, uh, if you lead with love, uh, the results are, are always, always better. I've never seen a positive result that's been led uh, through hate. <laughs> it's amazing. That's what we share in our family community also is that just leading love. That's all you got to do. Um I'm not asking you to be a prognosticator, but what, what are some things that you see on the horizon right now that are you're fearful? Cause I mean, like last week I pulled up an article, um, 6,000 people attend a, uh, neo-Nazi, co- uh, concert, uh, over in Germany. And I think it was yeah. in Weimar, I believe, but uh, you know, 6,000 people. And I guess the mayor was just like, I can't stop. This is happening. Um, they raised right. you know about a half a million euros. Chris, uh, I think you even didn't you have a concert that you did for four thousand people, like in '01. In in Weimar, yeah, um, yeah, I, I did hear about that concert. I heard uh, it was a big one, and I heard that there were you know definitely some difficulties in trying to stop it. But I, I didn't know it was in Weimar. And actually, it's in really theme. I just I had the article up now, but it's actually in Themar. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, I see things. Things are ramping up. There's a lot of fear rhetoric. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of unknown. Uh, I think leadership around the world is in question. Mm. Um, and uh, people, you know, don't know what to do. Uh, and because of this fear, they're, you know, going to the extremes on both the left and the right. Um, you know, it's happening in Europe where we're seeing far right politicians being elected. You know, we're seeing it in the United States of America as well. Um, I, I don't know. A lot of people ask me, like, you know, how did the Trump election, you know, cause all these racists? And I said, no, and they were always there. Uh, we just didn't see them. Now it's fashionable to, to kind of come out and, and talk about that, if, you know, uh, to shock people or, or to offend people or to, you know, maybe you just never had the courage to talk about your views before. And what happened, I think, on Election Day was a bucket of gasoline was kicked over and it kind of mm-hmm. ignited all those sparks that existed and then it spread. So it has gotten bigger. It, it, you know, I'm definitely seeing a lot of young people who normally stereotypically wouldn't be the ones who would join these types of groups now joining. Uh, so we're seeing you know, more privileged young white people, uh, young white kids joining these movements because uh, you know, it's easy. The Internet makes it easy to, to you know, belong to this community. And, you know, they're angry. They have these perceived grievances of what's happening in the world, many of which, you know, have been overblown or just simply don't exist and some that may exist. Uh, and they're choosing a side because there really is no middle anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you think about it, how many, you know, maybe 10 years ago we could say, you know, oh, there's people on the right, people on the left and people in the middle. And, and I think 
the way our discourse, our political discourse has been going lately is we've only got the left and the right. There really is no middle anymore, even That's though true. I think most of America wants to be in the middle. Mm-hmm. We're being forced to the edges. Uh, and uh, that's a really dangerous place to be because, you know, we're supposed to be able to have a civil discourse about things we disagree with. And if somebody is, you know, causing violence, uh, whether you're, you know, a white extremist or whether you're, uh, you know, a jihadist or whether you're, a, you know, a gang member, we need to deal with those issues, of course. But uh, we can't do that by targeting communities. We have to do prevention uh, because otherwise we're always going to be kind of digging ourselves out of the same hole and putting band-aids on it. Uh, you know, we need to change our culture, you know, systemically in a lot of ways we're broken. Our education system is broken. Our, our healthcare system is broken. Our, mm-hmm. our, uh, uh, justice system is, is broken. And, um, you know, until we start to fix those broken things to take care of the people who are at the very bottom, who need the help the most, we're all, the people in the, in the middle are always going to suffer and the people at the top are always going to gain. Uh, Until it's a just place for everybody to live in, there will be no justice. I really believe that. If we don't take care of the people, you know, at the at the very bottom of the pyramid, um, then the only people that benefit are the people at the very top, the furthest away from it. Um, Mm. So, you know, I'm of the mindset where you know everybody deserves opportunity, a fair opportunity, uh, and uh, you know we have to have an atmosphere of hope again. I think we're in a pretty hopeless state right now. I think the polarization with media and, and also going back to the social media has has just hit warp speed, warp drive. I mean, you see the fractures in the right and you see the fractures in the left. You may have some, you know, reasonably sounded mind conservative or someone who's reasonally sound uh, liberal. And but the polarization even even in, the, in those groups, you're not, you're not too liberal enough here. You're not too conservative enough. It's yeah. it's so fractured now. You, you just don't even know what to to think so the reasonable voices are being drowned out absolutely uh, by the loudest voices on the edges yeah and that's always the way it is i mean the extremists are always the loudest mm-hmm. they always have the least to say but they're, all, they're always you know <laughs> at, at the highest decibel and it drowns out the the reasonable voices that you know may take some work to get there but it's uh, you know it's common sense work whereas the extremists on all sides uh, you know are always looking for the easy solution they're always looking to blame somebody else for the problems and they've never been able to find the solution in, in a positive way because their tactics and their ideologies are broken. Mm-hmm. By the way, we have, we have reached out to extreme left groups and extreme right groups, and a lot of them won't come on. So it's <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of an irony thing. They, yeah, they uh, they like to be the well, loudest voice. On both sides of that fence, so you got two <laughs> with one today. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great combo. You had a really interesting story about um, speaking about political uh, sides. Uh, story about. Uh, Trump and it even went back to a girl that was posting uh, neo-Nazi videos online. Can you share that story? Yeah, if I if the one you're talking about is uh, about an intervention that I did with a 17 year old girl mm-hmm. yeah. uh, whose parents had contacted me uh, to help because she was making um, racist videos, neo-Nazi videos, propaganda and recruitment type things, and Holocaust denial stuff and. She was getting pretty popular and, uh, you know, parents were rightfully concerned. You know, they weren't happy with the path that this girl had chosen and saw it as very dangerous and it started to affect the family uh, and they wanted to get her some help. So dad reached out and, you know, I talked to dad and mom for a while and got some information uh, and actually didn't talk to the girl for for a couple months or a couple weeks uh, until after I started work on this. Uh, But 
I took some information that the parents gave me. She was uh, virtually dating this 23-year-old uh, guy from Idaho. Uh, she had never met him or seen him in person, but they had communicated online. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a little bit of information, so I did my homework. And uh, what I found was really disturbing. Uh, not only was this guy not a 23-year-old from Idaho, but he was a 30-something-year-old from, uh, from Moscow. Russia. And uh, he was uh, convincing young girls, underage girls, to uh, be his, you know, girls or his boyfriend, or they were he was going to be their boyfriend. And uh, none of the girls, of course, knew about the other ones. And and he would do that by getting compromising photos and videos from these girls, which he would then use to blackmail them. Uh, He was writing scripts for them to make these uh, propaganda videos that were very pro-Trump, very neo-Nazi. And this was back in September of last year, back before, you know, the only Russian thing we were talking about was, you know, Rocky IV. Um, (laughs) The latest James uh, Bond movie. Yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, uh, we just weren't talking about it. Nobody even had an idea. And what I found as I dug deeper uh, was not only was this guy catfishing her by, you know, stealing photos from other people online and and changing them and passing them off as his own, um, but uh, he was also connected to individuals, uh, and he himself was doing this, but I had discovered hundreds of thousands of social media profiles that were these uh, artificial intelligence-driven chatbots that were uh, essentially putting out, tweeting out links to fake news articles and propaganda, and were smart enough to be able to have conversations with people uh, on their own through the artificial intelligence, very simple conversations to make them seem as if they were real. Uh, and there were hundreds of thousands of these, and they were all, you know, very similar. Uh, they were all constantly pushing up propaganda, had avatars that were very, you know, pro-Trump, make America great again. Uh, but they were pushing out, you know, really neo-Nazi, very hateful, you know, Holocaust denial stuff. And, and they were doing a really good job at spreading around this, this misinformation. And what was interesting, though, was over time, as I started to watch these accounts, they began to change very slowly, and they would become uh, ISIS accounts, and then they would become Black Lives Matters accounts, uh, and then they would become left-wing extremist accounts. And essentially wow. what they were doing was uh, just putting out information against all sides to try and pit them all uh, against each other just to cause this this huge uh, you know, upset in our, in our uh, political process and to sway trending topics. And uh, yeah, uh, I was actually able to find who this individual was, and I presented the information to uh, the parents and to the girl, and she didn't believe me, of course. You know, she was in love, (laughs) and she leaked the information to the guy, uh, and uh, within an hour of me leaving uh, this house, uh, I had all my websites uh, and all the domains that I host uh, all hacked by Russian malware, and I started getting probably about a dozen death threats a day. Uh, tapered off a little bit, but I still do get them every day. Holy cow. And, uh, it's been an interesting ride. And here we are talking about Russia when everybody's talking about Russia. <laughs> but it's a little bit different connections. Uh, wow. I, 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 saw the, uh, I saw the rap love letter that uh, he, I guess a young gentleman wrote you. So is that something common that you get? Uh, I don't usually get rap love letters that are just completely like X-rated and very threatening. Uh, 
but I have gotten some really interesting things. Uh, you know, people have threatened to, to behead me, and then uh, when I've tempted them to do that, they've given me their address mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I could come visit them. That's that's pretty easy. They're not very smart. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. You know, when you do something like this, there are going to be people that don't agree with you uh, that think you're, you know, a paid shill from you know the government or from you know, Jewish organizations like the ADL. One of they always jumped at it. Yeah. I've been called, listen, I've been called everything and I've got a whole file that occasionally I'll go through to get a chuckle at. Um, but I, I've been called a Mossad agent, you know, an Israeli spy. I've been called an FBI uh, informant. I've been uh, called uh, a Pakistani native who. Uh, whose real name is Abdullah bin Muhammad, who uh, actually started ISIS 20 years ago. <laughs> Little did they know ISIS has only been around for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been called a pedophile. I've been called a rapist. I've been mm-hmm. called, um, you name it. The, the, the latest thing, and I'll tell you this one because it was probably the most hilarious one, was that President Obama gave me $10 million personally, I might add, gave mm-hmm. me $10 million to fund – uh, FEMA camps so that I could round up young white nationalists and put them in these camps. That sounds about uh, right. If I had yeah. $10, million, if I had $10 mil, million, dollars, I could think of a couple things to do with it. That would not be one of them. But, uh, Move that cash to a, uh, that they're not creative. I mean, they're, yeah. they definitely have, uh, they definitely have good imaginations, but you know, it gets tiring every once in a while. Sure. Man, I just, uh, I'm just blown away by this interview. I'm man. I would love to spend another 10 hours with you. Cause I, I think your I think your story is absolutely amazing. And I think the organization is, uh, absolutely amazing. So, um, I can, appreciate can, it. yeah, man. Uh, well, can, for your listeners, if, if anybody wants to learn more, uh, I've written a book about it. My book's called romantic violence, uh, memoirs of an American skinhead. I write about kind of my journey getting recruited and what my life was like while I was in, but also what helped me out and, and, and some of the strategies that I actually use now to help other people. And, and uh, it's pretty easy to find if you Google it. And where's, where's the best way to actually, you know, while we're talking about that, where's the best way to purchase that book? I mean, I'm sure they can look on the big famous website yeah, to, to directly help you out. Amazon. Yeah. And I appreciate that guys. Uh, I mean, Amazon is probably the easiest way for people to find it. They can also go into their local bookstore and ask for it if they don't have it. Um, yeah. Or direct sale at www.christianpicciolini.com. And, uh, also, uh, you got it. yeah. Hey, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta make a living somehow, right? So, uh, <laughs> no, I appreciate it. But, uh, also besides that website, you do have uh, lifeafterhate.org. Um, also exitusa.org. And that's the, the exitusa.org is the website for people can, anonymously uh, message in and you guys will get a response back as far as, uh, you know, finding a way out or if you know someone who needs a way out and needs some type of support system and legs to do that. So um, you got it. Christian, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, man, uh, <laughs> we didn't, we didn't fry anything. I'm a little disappointed. Well, uh, don't worry. I, I would uh, love to have you on for another time. So we can actually fry. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I'm in Texas, you can count on it. I'll, I'll definitely come over and, and we'll make a feast of it. North, North, North Carolina, but we do have good barbecue here. North Carolina. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's almost as good as Texas. <laughs> All right. And then you Guys, can also go pleasure. out. Sorry, I was also going to say you can go out to um, uh, lifeafterhate.org and actually donate now just directly on their website so you can right. donate to that organization. There's, there's also several other good books on there by the other founders and other 
just people, I guess, that help have experiences. Yeah, we've got a lot of good people doing a lot of good work. And and what's unfortunate, and and I'm glad that you mentioned, uh, you know, that we are a nonprofit and that we do accept donations. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, uh, we found out from uh, the administration that uh, a $400,000 grant that we won back in January was actually being rescinded because because of our focus on – you know, white extremism not being a priority for them. So oh, wow. we can use all the help that we can get uh, to continue our work, to be able to scale. Obviously, we're, we've got our hands full. Uh, you know, we're up to our gills and, and trying to help people, and, and we can always uh, you know, use some support to, to try and train some others to do this work to meet the demand. That would be appreciated. Absolutely. Sure. Sounds good. And also, if you have one more minute. Um, we, we play a game called 10 and 1 where we're going to ask you 10 10- completely ridiculous questions and see if you can get those answers in under a minute. Do you have time to play that game? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Here we go. All right. So, um, smashing pumpkins or pumpkin pie? Uh, I'm from Chicago. So smashing pumpkin. Favorite vacation location? Uh, coast Switzerland. Okay. Last show that you binge watched. Uh, Ray Donovan. Blue Island or Thousand Island? Uh, Thousand Island. (laughs) (laughs) Favorite place to get a slice of pie? Uh, Well, this is Chicago, so I'm going to go with pizza pie, and I would say Lou Malnati's. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Besides us, who has been your favorite interviewee, interviewer? Um, Samantha B. Oh, really? Um, DePaul University or Paul Pierce? DePaul. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite 80s band? Um, Well, I don't know if they're an 80s band, but I'll have to go with The Clash because that's when they were popular. Good choice. Okay. Um, This one might be a little bit um, tongue-in-cheek, but, well, it's completely tongue-in-cheek. Which uh, Power Ranger would you choose, the White Power Ranger or the Black Power Ranger? (laughs) Uh, Let's go with the gray power ranger <laughs> wrong answer i was looking for pink the pink power ranger is the answer <laughs> all right and your last question is everybody has a spirit animal what is your spirit food nutella oh mm. nice well done sir my daughter eats a jar that at least yeah. <laughs> we have not had a nutella before but that you nailed it good job sir awesome man hey christian yeah <laughs> uh, thanks once again my pleasure guys yeah. And also, we'll have uh, all of our show notes. We'll have all your links to your websites in there, too, for any of our listeners that missed it. And uh, that's it. That was, I'm looking forward to it, man. Let me know what I can do to, to get the word out. And it was a real pleasure. You guys are a lot of fun. 